Well, happy Easter, church. It's good to be together, isn't it? It's good to come together as his body, and I'm excited to celebrate today. That's what I, I really felt like I was, as I was putting the notes together for today, that I really just wanted to uh, capture that it's a celebration, capture that this is a moment where, yes, the cross was necessary, it was uh, the way of redemption, it was brutal, and it was a criminal's death, yet Jesus went willingly to that cross, didn't he? He went willingly, and he stepped off his throne, and he humbled himself to the lowly level of a human being, and he died a death he did not deserve. But today, we celebrate, because it's not just Easter, but as Christians, we call it what? Resurrection Day, right? Resurrection Sunday. It's not only where we paint eggs and have candy, and those things are fine. You may have your ham dinner after this, and those things are fine. But today, we celebrate that Jesus was resurrected. The cross was required to get to this day, but this day, we celebrate that Jesus rose again. Amen. And as we celebrate him, we remember that what this celebration is about is about our sins were put in the grave with him. Our sin was put on the cross with him. And it was because of God's great love that God not only resurrected Christ, but he resurrected us. Say, I'm resurrected in Christ. In fact, as I began to put these notes together, I began to get excited because really today is a celebration of our resurrection. Say, today I celebrate that I'm resurrected. I think sometimes we forget that Jesus was a king. He didn't come and die and become a king. He was a king on the throne. And that this whole thing... This entire thing, I'm getting ahead of myself here, but that this entire thing that Jesus did, this, the 33 years he lived on the earth, the, uh, the, in, the miracles he did, the things that even we don't even understand that he was doing on the earth, the cross and the resurrection is all about you. I, in fact, I was putting these notes together and I said, Lord, I just want to talk about you today. A lot of Sundays we talk about us. Because, and the, God, and the Lord loves us, right? So, so God's not offended by that because God wants to get us through whatever obstacle or issue that we're trapped in. Amen. But I was like, Lord, it's Easter. You know, it's only one of maybe two Sundays, maybe Christmas included, that we just talk about you and just praise you, right? And then I began to just get this revelation from the Lord that how can I possibly talk about Christ without talking about you? That the entire idea of Jesus being the Christ, you know, that's not his name, Jesus Christ, right? It's not his last name. Christ was a title. And what was it, right? It was what he did here on the earth. That it was all about you. That this entire thing, he couldn't leave us here on the earth. He couldn't abandon us, could he? The Bible says, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 20, that Christ has been raised from the dead, but it says he is the first, everybody say the first, and I'm included in the rest of that harvest. Jesus 
was the first, but there is a great harvest, and that includes you and I, that he paved the way. He did not die to prove himself. He didn't need to prove anything to the Father. He did it only for you and I. The Bible says in Colossians 2, verse 12, for you were buried with Christ when you were baptized, and with him you were raised to new life because you trusted the mighty power of God who raised Christ from the dead. Verse 13, you were dead because of your sins and because of your sinful nature was not yet cut away. Then God made you alive with Christ. So we were dead and we were made alive with Christ for he forgave all our sins. Verse 14, he canceled the record of the charges against us and took it away by nailing it to the cross. And in this way, he disarmed the spiritual rulers and authorities. He shamed them publicly by his victory over them on the cross. Jesus did not need to prove anything to Satan for himself. God and his kingdom can never be shaken. His throne cannot be moved. There is nothing that anyone can do or say to take the authority away from God. We can stand and we can build towers of Babel and we can attempt to, to steal some sort of fake, false way into heaven. And you can come up with all kinds of new age and astrology and all kinds of weirdness to try to, Jesus said it would try, they would try to do it try to get in another way, and the reality is, is that God's kingdom cannot be penetrated, and it cannot be moved, and Jesus didn't need to prove himself, nor the Father, to anyone on the earth, but everything that he did was for the benefit of our eternity with him forever. Amen. And when I'm reminded of this whole story of Genesis to Revelation, that it's about God's love for us, and I'm reminded that Jesus came to the earth for one purpose, to cancel the charges against us. That he disarmed Satan and was resurrected to bring me and you with him into eternity. And when I remember this and when I think about this, it causes me to love him even more and praise him even more. God is good, isn't he? And he's faithful to us. He made us and he's faithful to us. The Bible says that he cannot abandon us. It's in fact, it's against his nature. Even if he wanted to, he couldn't. God cannot because of his nature of love. The Bible says God is love. It doesn't say that God loves. Yes, he does love, but it comes out of his DNA, out of his nature. God is is loved, right? The world's trying to define what love is, but we go to the word. I've already got the definition. It's already been written down. It's God. God is love. And the Bible says that even though the world could care less about God, and when something bad happens, they point their finger at him, and suddenly it's his fault. But the Bible says that he will never abandon us and never forsake us. That even though the world uh, doesn't understand him and wants to accuse him, wants to make him this and make him that, he remained faithful to us. Amen. Amen. 
and he has promised to redeem us and keep the fullness of his promise. In fact, the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20, that for all of God's promises, you may know them as they are, yes and amen. They have been fulfilled in Christ with a resounding yes, and through Christ our amen, which means yes, ascends to God for his glory. God is a promise keeper. In fact, Jesus is the promise and the promise keeper. Who knows the phrase, this fulfills? Who's ever recognized when you're reading through your verses? Well, I went into my, my computer program. I have a Bible computer program, and I typed in the word, this fulfills, to see just how many times it was said, and it was 57 times in my New Testament that it says, this fulfills. You know, Jesus did everything on purpose, and many of the things he did uh, to fulfill prophecy were without anybody even realizing they were happening. In fact, even his own disciples didn't even recognize what was happening. And in fact, we just went through Matthew, right, as the church, and I'm reading it, and he's literally telling them more than once, this is what's going to happen. Don't worry. I'm going to do this, and this is on purpose, and even reprimands Peter for arguing with Jesus about his plan. And suddenly, though, you know, the cross happens, and they forget. We need to understand something, that God made promises to us that we don't even understand, even before time began, and he is going to be faithful to accomplish everything he said. He is going to do everything that he promised to do. Whether you understand it, whether you've seen it yet, it doesn't matter. I know we're like, what do you mean it doesn't matter? But it doesn't matter that I haven't seen every promise. I haven't, I haven't fully understood every facet of God. I've just taken I made the choice to believe his word and to believe that he is who he says he is and I think I'm going to prove some things by what he's already done that we can trust him for tomorrow amen Jesus fulfilled well over 300 prophecies written about him hundreds and some thousands of years before he ever walked the earth. Some scholars have gone through the scriptures and have found that Jesus fulfilled 456 prophecies. And depending on how you look at scripture, you could look even deeper and find up to a thousand prophecies fulfilled. Well, I started thinking about this, and, you know, not only did Jesus fulfill prophecies, but Jesus was... Uh, he was pictured, we call them types and shadows. There were endless metaphors besides prophecies through the entire Old Testament that all point to this day that Jesus would be on the earth, to the cross, and to our resurrection. In fact, this would include things like Isaac. Who remembers Isaac? Right? Isaac being, right, the only son, right? Abraham tries to do it his own way. Nope, it's your only son. It's through you and Sarah. It's the son, the only son. And what? I want him to be sacrificed, right? We see the picture of Christ there. You can see Joseph went before his brothers to prepare a place for them. Wow, isn't this amazing? Jesus went before us, he said, to prepare a place for us and calls us brothers, right? Did you know that? 
We, we, sometimes we get confused, like father, son. Did you know that Jesus says he, he's your brother? He's the picture. You know, Joseph even means Jesus. If you really look at the Hebrew, Jesus went ahead. He went into a place to prepare a place for us. Jesus has done that for us. You can go on. Moses was spared from death as a baby, just as Jesus, the same exact thing, right? They were going to kill all the babies, and Jesus was spared. Uh, we see the picture there with Moses. Moses grows up just as Jesus does and is used by God to lead them out of bondage into the promise. In fact, David, continuing on, I mean, you could go through all of the, the word, but these are just some quick examples. David, who was the king of Israel, the Bible says that he was a king. He, was, he led he had a heart after God's own heart. My word says that Jesus had, uh, he, he did nothing, he, everything he did, everything he said was what? Was led, it was led by the Holy Spirit and according to what the Father has said or directed. And so you can actually look at your word. Not only did Jesus, not only was he prophesied at a minimum of 300 times, but he was pictured throughout the entire Bible until he walked the earth. Everything pointed to him. In fact, a, uh, maybe you've heard this before, and I love this story, so I felt like I needed to bring it up again and, and, and remind you today if you've already heard this. But in 1963, a Westmont college professor named Peter Stoner, which is kind of funny to have that name in 1963, Peter Stoner. That was probably not a good name to have doing a biblical study. But uh, in 1963, he worked with 600 university students. He gathered up. He had 12 different classes. And he worked with these students, 600 of them. And what he did was he, he took and calculated the probability that one man could fulfill all these prophecies. But to try to even do the math on all the prophecies was actually, it's not, we don't even have the math potential to do that. And I'm going to show you why. What he decided to do was just to work on eight, all right? I already said you could really dig deep, and you can see Jesus. He is pictured in everything, and he's at, at least 300 456 maybe, maybe 1,000 prophecies. And they decided, let's just work with eight. And so this is what happened. They started doing the math. And so what they said is, well, before we even deal with the eight, let's just deal with one. What's the math that Jesus could have been born, that it was prophesied that the Messiah would be from Bethlehem? So they did the math, and it worked out basically to be a chance of one and 300,000. Who today would put a dollar on lotto with your chances of one in 300,000? Some of you would, because you think, whatever, maybe. But that's not great odds either, is it? One in 300,000. Okay, we're just getting started. So what they did is they said, let's look at these eight prophecies. And again, this was what they did is they took the 600 students and they only agreed unanimously, over 600. See, some were skeptical. And they only picked eight prophecies that all 600 agreed were prophesied and then came to pass in the New Testament. All right, so 
He only wanted to work with unanimous agreement on prophecy. So I think that that's a key. And then what he did is when he got the results, he handed it over to secular mathematicians to do the math so that there was no corruption and no handling and, and just say, well, that's just Bible guys saying Bible things. And so what happened is the number is so big that it's calculated this way. This way. It's in order for Jesus to fulfill all eight prophecies, it's a chance of one in 10 to the 17th power. That is one with 17 zeros. We don't even have a number for that. We have to go by powers because we don't have a name for that number. In fact, to bring that into understanding, it was like this. If you take a hat, and I say 1 in 10, right? We all understand 1 in 10. There's how many tickets inside that hat? 10. And I cut, close my eyes and reach in. 1 in 10 is I'm going to randomly pick 1 out of those 10, right? That's 1 in 10. Well, in order to understand 1 in 10 to the 17th power, they, if you took, this is just unbelievable, if you took silver dollars, all right, everybody have a picture of a silver dollar? All right. And you piled them across the entire state of Texas. You ready for this? Two feet thick. It would take, it would take you, what, two, is it like two days of normal driving? Maybe you could drive really fast across Texas, but like normal driving takes like a good two days. Annie, you were closer. Something like that. Jim, you remember? Yeah, two days. Just to drive across the state. And that's not to cover every single inch. We're talking every inch, two feet deep. Now listen, then you'd have to stir them because it has to be random. And then you'd have to blindfold a guy and say, you can go anywhere you want, but you have to pick the one coin I put a special marking on. Do you realize, Jesus, it was not an accident? Do you realize how incredible this is? That is, listen, that is eight prophecies of a minimum of 300 besides, again, the pictures that I can see Jesus in everything. You start looking and he is just, he is literally, I'm going to show you in just a moment that he's even in the framework of the temple. I mean, he is in everything. Everything pointed to him, which means this. My Bible says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? Whoever believes in him shall not perish and have everlasting life. That is, you and I who have repented of our sins and received Christ and go to eternity with him. That it was that exact in that particular. Do you realize that even in math, your mind can't compute how much he loves us? Jesus only really had to fulfill one prophecy. I'm a sinner. Jesus takes your place. And God was like, let's just blow their mind. One day, they're going to have the math. They're going to be able to calculate this. Right now, you guys can't even understand it when it's happening in real time, getting penned down into a book that the world just calls a book. 
But one day they're going to be able to do the math, and I just want to blow their minds on how much I love them. That's his love. If there was a calculation of his love, which I don't think we can do, we can look at it like this and say, I just, it doesn't make sense. They went deeper, but I'm not going to try to even try to explain it. But basically, in order to fulfill 50 prophecies of 300, we don't even have, if the silver dollars were atoms in the universe, Right now, we are saying that there's somewhere between 50 to 60 billion galaxies. I'm not talking stars. I'm not talking planets. I mean galaxies. We can't even, in our lifetime, we can't even get to the end of our galaxy. And the, they're telling us today that there's possibly 50 to 60 billion of them. And the math, if you took all the atoms that make up the known universe, it's not enough to fulfill one in 50. It's just unbelievable. I can't even understand, and it was all because of his love. I want you to look with me for these next minutes at a story that we all know, but I don't think we, we all realize, or maybe we just need to be reminded on what Jesus was doing here. The Bible says in Genesis 1-1 that in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. It says that the earth was formless and it was empty and darkness covered the deep waters and God hovered himself personally above the waters and he said, let us make this church, these people sitting here. Let us make human beings. Let us make man in our image to be like us. In verse 27, it says that God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. In chapter 2, verse 7, it says that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life, his own breath. He breathed into Adam. And the man became a living person. And then God planted a garden in Eden in the east. And there he placed the man he made. Then God placed the man in the garden of, the, of Eden to tend and watch over it. Of all the universe, God picks earth and picks this clay and breathes life into you and I. David said, who can even understand, to put it in 2022 language, how can I even understand it that you care about this, this person right here? How is it that you are so big and yet you care so much about us? The Bible says that God literally gave his own breath to you and I, and he gave them this garden and he says, I just want you to be here. You don't have to sweat. You don't have to struggle. You don't have to strive. You don't have to do anything except exist. I just want you to be here, and I want to be here with you. That's it. That's literally at the basis of this entire thing, God and humanity it is that God was creating things. He was creating the trees. He was creating the oceans. He was creating the animals, but there wasn't companionship there. And so he made you and I to have companions. And the Bible says 
in chapter 3, verse 8, when the cool evening breezes were blowing, it says, the man and his wife heard the Lord God walking about in the garden. The Bible says here in Genesis 3 that God literally walked in the garden with them. Can you even understand that? Can you imagine God? What would you do right now if God just walked into that room? I mean, he is in here in spirit, right? He is inside of each of us. But what would you do if he in the flesh just walked through that door right now? And that was a normal day for Adam and Eve. Who loves the cool of the evening? Who can actually get a picture of that? That's like one of my favorite times. Cool the morning, cool the evening. I mean, just the whole picture of it, right? The sun is going down. I've still got light, but I don't have its harsh heat. Right? Everything's starting to look pretty. I can see the sunsets, and here comes the Lord to spend some time with them. And the Bible says they hid from the Lord, and the Lord called to the man, Where are you? Verse 9. Do you think the Lord was suddenly who created everything, who created the universe? Do you think that he was suddenly turned around? He forgot to turn his GPS on his iPhone that day. He forgot to put his, what are those things, those little pods? What are those little things where you can track things and people? Kind of dangerous. Anybody want to shout it out? What's the name of those things? Is it pod? Anyway, it's dangerous because... It's a good way for a person to actually take a kid. They take these things and they put them in kids' backpacks and then they just follow them home. The t yeah, the air tags. Well, anyway, God forgot to turn it on on Adam and lost him. So he's like, where are you? Of course God knew where he was, but the picture here is that something had been broken. There was a separation. Adam and Eve had lost something special. There was a disconnection. Everybody say disconnection. It says, verse 10, he replied, I heard you walking in the garden, so I hid. I was afraid because I was naked. The Bible says, in verse 12, it says, the woman you gave me, gave me fruit, gave me the fruit, and I ate it. And then verse 13, the woman says, it's not my fault. The serpent deceived me. That's why I ate it. And the Bible says that at this day, that something happened. Verse 15, and I will cause hostility between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Verse 22, the Lord said, Look, the human beings have become like us, knowing both good and evil. What if they reach out, take fruit from the tree of life, and eat it? Then they will live forever. So the Lord God banished them from the garden of Eden and sent Adam out to cultivate the ground from which he had been made. And after sending them out, the Lord God stationed 
mighty cherubim to the east of the garden, and he placed a flaming sword that flashed back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. All that God wanted, the, the whole story of us, is not you searching to find some mysterious purpose. God uses us for all kinds of purposes. Yes, there are things that he uses us for, but the, the whole thing is really just about you and him being one, knowing each other. And the Bible says right there in the very beginning that Satan came in and deceived them, just as he deceives us, doesn't he? Tries to tell you that this world is better than what God has for you. That your decisions and your perceptions are smarter and are are more uh, intellectual and, and more scientific than God and his way and his word. Hopefully I've just proved to you that God cannot be outwitted. I mean, that we don't even have the calculations to compete with God, and yet we call God and we call his word, just like Satan tricked them, we call him, you know, archaic and something of the past, and an old dusty thing. And Satan is still trying to do that to this world today. So what happened is there was a war that began where Satan strikes, and only in Christ we have that we strike his head, right? We know that promise through Christ, but ultimately that one day of her seed would come someone who would crush the head of the serpent, that that day something happened that actually kicked us out of not the place. It's not the garden that we lost. It was who walked in the garden with us. It was not Eden that you lost. It was that there was no longer fellowship between God and man. I want you to look with me now to Luke chapter 23. In Luke 23, I absolutely love, I love, I love his word as it is, and I sound like Jeannie, I, every time it's my favorite verse, but in Luke 23, verse 39, I love this story. It says, one of the criminals, Jesus is on the cross, and there's a criminal on each side. There's one on his left, and there's one on his right, and one of the criminals, he scoffs at him in verse 39, and he says, so you're the Messiah, are you? Prove it. By saving yourself and us, too, while you're at it. But the other criminal protested, Don't you fear God even when you've been sentenced to die? We deserve to die for our crimes. But this man hasn't done anything wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. This is exactly what each and every one of us in this room say to him. When we repent of our sins, when we say, Lord, come into my life. I've made a mess of my life. I deserve, I deserve to die. Lord God, when I've done it my way, I just make a mess. When I do things with my own perceptions and with reason and logic, instead of just trusting you and trusting your word, and I've listened to the Satan and, uh, to Satan, and I've eaten of the fruit, and he deceived me. But Lord God, if there's any hope, remember me 
in your kingdom. And Jesus replied, just as he will to you, if you say the same thing to him, I assure you today, you will be with me in paradise. The Bible says that by this time, it was about noon and darkness fell across the whole land until three o'clock. And the Bible says that the light from the sun was gone. Matthew 27 says that there was an earthquake. And suddenly it says that the curtain in the sanctuary of the temple was torn down the middle. John records that Jesus says at this moment, it is finished. It says here in verse 46 that Jesus shouted, Father, I entrust my spirit into your hands. And with those words, he breathed his last. See, the Bible actually has this picture, as I've been telling you today, of Jesus throughout the word. Even the physical temple was a picture of Christ. And just very quickly, if you were to go into an ancient Jew, the, the ancient Jewish temple, not A, because there was only one, it was destroyed, then they rebuilt it. There were synagogues. Those were like social places. But the, the temple was the place where God dwelled. And the Bible tells us that there was two main rooms when you got into the core of, this, of his temple. And it was the holy place. Who knows the holy place? Everybody say the holy place. And then you could go deeper into the most holy of holies. But no one was allowed in there except the high priest, one particular person who had, he had better make sure that he has been fully repented because we know from Bible history that they would tie a rope around his ankle and if he went into that room, the most holy of holies, into God's presence with sin in his life that was not repented, they would put bells around his ankles because all of a sudden they hear them jingle, the guy drops dead and they had to drag him out. You understand that the presence of God was locked up. But the Bible says that in the holy place, see, there was a place that was the in-between. Everybody say the in-between. See, there was a place that the priest, could, the, the priest, with an S there, because there was plural, there were priests under the high priest that, that worked and helped the people bring their sacrifices to come to, to, to God's presence to as close as you could get. You couldn't get to his actual presence, but you could come and you could tell God, I want to know you. There's no real relationship, but I do. I can't help but recognize you in the earth, and I want to just tell you that you're God. And you could do that, but the actual communion, the fellowship, the cool of the morning, the cool of the evening, the, the comforting you in your, in your hurts and weaknesses. See, David would cry and cry and cry and cry and say, Lord, when, 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 when? And David was probably one of the closest ones to the Lord, Old Testament, that we can read about. But our Bible tells us, I'm fast-forwarding here, but that we have the Holy Spirit who is with us instantaneously. There is a comfort that we have that is not in a room, it's not in a building, it's not behind a curtain, but it's within your heart through Christ Jesus. And the Bible says that there was this veil. What happened is, to protect that place, it says that the cloth, the curtain was so thick, it was as thick as a man's hand. Because really what the veil represented was death itself. 
And that's why <laughs> it costs them their lives sometimes. Only death to get into the presence of God. And what happened is Jesus fulfills it all, but the pictures there point to him. And, and what, it, what we can look at is on this side, in the holy place, there was uh, three things. We had the showbread, we had the menorah, and we had the, uh, the altar of incense. And all three of those things are pointing to what Christ was going to do. It was in a physical form that they could see and they could touch, but it was all pointing to him. Jesus literally said, I am the light of the world. He literally says, I am the bread. And right in the center of them, right before the curtain, was the ark of incense. And what that was, literally, we can go through our scriptures, was when the incense was ascending to, up to God, it would represent the prayers. And literally, the only entrance in, and it had to be cleansed by the blood. So the prayers only made it to God by the blood. And Christ himself, my Bible says, is a mediator. Everybody say he's a mediator. You know what a mediator is? That's a go-between. That is somebody between you and someone else. And Jesus himself takes our prayers himself, even to this day, to the Father on your behalf. It was all pointing towards Christ. And the Bible tells us that suddenly this veil was torn. Everybody say, the veil was torn. Inside of this veiled holy place, there was only one thing, the Ark of the Covenant, which was literally where God himself dwelled. God of the universe dwelled on the earth in this particular spot. And the picture here is incredible. It was guarded by over with angels. Now, what did I just read to you from Genesis 1? There was a place of God's presence. And God said, the angels are going to stand guard. You cannot go into this place any longer. And God created a system for a season of animal blood, even Adam and Eve. God actually did the first sacrifice. Did you know that? Everybody ever wonder where God got the skins of animals from? There was a couple of naked animals running around. He took their skins off. He shed the blood. He shed the blood on their behalf. He spared their lives, took the animals' lives instead of theirs, and he covered them. The Bible says he covered their nakedness. He covered them by their blood and gave them skin. And the Bible says that in this place, inside of that ark, that's where we had the Ten Commandments. That is literally where the Word dwells. My Bible says, and yours says the same, that Jesus is the Word made flesh. Every single thing points to Him. I could get way deeper. We're not going to do that on Easter Sunday. <laughs> I'm not going to keep you here for five hours. But it all points to Him. And within that place, the garden has been restored. Jesus took the place. Jesus stood in the gap. He tore the veil. He shed his blood. 
Instead of the blood of animals, the Bible says, and you could go through your own scripture, you can look in Hebrew. Hebrew spends chapters after chapters talking, telling us about it. And in fact, it says in Hebrews 10 that we should come boldly into his presence because what the blood of animals couldn't do, what it would only kind of partially satisfy, and you had to be very, very careful to, to uh, tipping, towing on eggshells around the presence of God. Jesus said, you no longer need to come through a system. You no longer need to go through a church system to get to me. You no longer need to go through religion to get to me. In fact, you don't need to go through people to get to me. You can come to the Father directly through me. He became, in fact, the Bible says, Jesus said, I am the door. I am the way. I mean, it all points to Christ on that cross and everything. And when you really start unraveling this entire Bible, everything is about you and I. It is a redemption story from Genesis to Revelation. God has got nothing to prove to the devil. He doesn't need to. The Bible says, you can read it on your own time, but 1 John 3, Colossians 2, Romans 16, that he says he came to destroy the works of the devil. The works of the devil had us captive. They didn't have God captive. He came and destroyed Satan. In fact, that final prophecy on the cross, the Bible says, and this is amazing, it's called Gol Golgotha. Everybody know Golgotha? Who's ever heard that? Let me just get a show of hands. Everybody heard, anybody heard Golgotha? That's where they pounded Jesus' cross into the ground for him to be crucified. Do you know what Golgotha means? The place of the skull. You know whose skull that is? That's Satan's skull. And you could even say it's my skull too, because my old man, right? I'm getting a new body. Who in here is getting a new body? My skull and Satan's skull, I don't need those anymore. I'm going to leave mine with you. You deceived me once. And I want to get back into that place of communion with you. I want to eat the showbread. I want the light. I want you to lead me into your presence. I want to get back to the place that you always destined for me. You know, it's cheap. It's really cheap to say Jesus died so that I can go to heaven. Jesus died so I can know him. And heaven is just eternity. Amen. In fact, let's close with this. And then I want to take communion together. It says in Revelation 22, it says, The angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. It flowed down the center of the main street, and on each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with a fresh crop each month, and the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. And it says, and no longer will there be a curse upon anything, for the throne of God and of the Lamb will be there, and his servants will worship him, and they will see his face. And his name will be written on their foreheads. And there will be no night. There will be no need for lamps or sun. For the Lord God will shine on them. And they will reign forever and ever. Amen.
Amen. We thank you, Jesus. Let's just pray. We thank you, Jesus, that you paid the price. Lord, yes, you've washed our sin. You've canceled the curse, Lord. But that, Lord God, that is nothing compared to what you truly did, which was that you reconnected us with yourself. The gap, the chasm, Lord, that sin put in the way of us and you, Lord, I thank you that you closed that gap. And I thank you, Lord Jesus, that right this moment, we don't need to die to go to heaven, that we are living with you right here and now. Lord, one day, that's the fullness of the promise and the hope. Yes, a new body, a new heaven, and a new earth. But God, we enter into that place now. Your word says, come now. Your word says, come boldly. Your word says, leave all the stuff that's getting you all trapped up here now, here on the earth, and come and be with me now. We just give you glory. We give you praise. We give you honor. And we thank you again, Jesus, for what you've done.